You remember when Jesus was teaching the disciples how to pray, teaching us how to pray. He instructs us, models for us, a prayer that starts off acknowledging the holiness of God, even as we sang this morning, right? But in Matthew 6, verse 10, he moves immediately after acknowledging God's holiness. He moves immediately to this request, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. When Jesus instructs us to pray that, it's an acknowledgement that his kingdom is not yet here in its complete form. Right? We haven't yet seen the, the reign of Christ over this earth become its, its complete literal reality yet. And so his kingdom is not yet here in its complete form. And so we're instructed to pray, your kingdom come. We, we get little reminders that his kingdom is not here yet in its completeness every day. Of course, this week with the shooting in Texas, we've got a big reminder. And if we wondered, is Jesus' kingdom here yet? We were reminded this week, no. No, it is not here yet in its complete and final form. The fact is, things often go very wrong in this world. And sometimes they go very wrong in our lives. And the events this week, and even some of the things we've been reading about in Revelation, especially last week in chapter 11, verses 1 to 14, as we see the church called to to speak the word even in the context of suffering and persecution, guarantee basically the church is going to suffer as we seek to follow Jesus, we could ask the question, how can we live by faith? How can we move forward with belief in the God of the universe in the face of persecution, in the face of suffering, in the face of a world where school school shootings happen and cancer is still a thing and there's so much Again, that goes so wrong. How can we move forward by faith? Unborn babies are eliminated out of convenience, and the rich oppress the poor, the poor oppress each other. Cancer returns again and again, and maybe sometimes just a a close friend becomes an enemy and turns their back on us. How can we live by faith in such times? Well, this ending here to chapter 11 as we get into the seventh trumpet, it is a preview of the ultimate end. But it's a preview with a focus actually on the good that is coming. And it's precisely because this follows the description of the persecution of the church that we know it's meant to encourage us to walk by faith even today. So listen, I don't know what the drama is that you're facing specifically in your personal life. I do know the general circumstances of our culture. And I know that you may struggle with the question, how can I move forward as a Christian in light of what's going on? And this passage is one way that God answers that question. So in verse 14, we had the introduction here that this is uh, the, the introduction between the second and third woe. The woes are the announcement of God's judgment against unbelievers. And so we'll see this as a part of that in the seventh trumpet. But let's pick it up in verse 15 and just get into the, the seventh trumpet here. In verse 15, we read, The seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Now, just a minute here on on the seventh trumpet, okay? So we had the six trumpets previously blown, and then we had this pause, all right? And the pause, some of you are like going, let's get to the seventh, okay? Let's go. We need the complete set here, right? 
And there was a pause between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. And now there was a pause between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. Why? The pause creates anticipation. And just like the sixth seal was a sneak preview of the end of the ultimate judgment of God making all wrongs right, right, and his coming and his, his kingdom, here the, the blowing of the seventh trumpet occasions basically the same thing. It's a preview of the ultimate end. The seventh trumpet ultimately leads to then seven bowls of judgment, which that's like the final expression of God's judgment. That's it. So we're going to get to that uh, in a bit. But here in the announcement of the seventh trumpet and the blowing of the seventh trumpet, we're just reminded that we've been anticipating and waiting for kind of the culmination. And although we're not there yet, basically we get a little um, snack to tide us over, okay? This is just a little, a little picture of what is coming to encourage us even though we're not out of the woods just yet when it comes to difficult circumstances. So the seventh angel blows his trumpet. And then there are loud voices in heaven. We don't know who the voices are specifically. Basically two options. Either it's just angels. Well, three options. It's just angels, or it's just the saints, or it's the angels and the saints together. And I don't think there's a lot of difference in in which view you take on that. But the voices are loud. Why are they loud? I ask that often. Why are my children's voices so loud? early in the morning. Why, Lord? And God answers, it's judgment. No, I, that's, <laughs> that's not it. Why, why are the voices loud? Why do we get loud? We get loud to emphasize something, right? We get loud to emphasize something. And here, the loud voices emphasize some very good news. Now, don't forget what we just read last week. The church is going to suffer and you're going to die, but you'll be vindicated in the resurrection. How's that for a forecast for your week? You're going to have a hard week. You'll probably die. But God's going to win in the end, and you're going to be raised, so it's going to be okay, right? That's hard. That's hard, a hard message to hear. And so here in this blowing of the seventh trumpet, John is blessed with an auditory reminder of the goodness of what is to come ultimately. Again, light at the end of the tunnel here. And so here the loud voices, they're saying something really important. And what is the message? Where are we headed? What is the ultimate conclusion? Note it in your Bible in verse 15. Watch the language here. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ or his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. If you're looking for good news in the midst of a tough week this morning, it's right there. This is where we're headed. And so, forecasting difficulty for the church here, the Spirit gives John, in this vision, he gives John this this glimpse, and he says, I just want you, don't lose sight of where we're headed. I just want you to see where we're headed here, because you're going to need this information to navigate the difficulty that is coming. The seven churches need this sneak preview, and brothers and sisters, you and I need this preview. We need it every week, but man, we need it this week. Note a couple, a couple aspects here just in what he says about the kingdom or what they, the voices say about the kingdom. First of all, there's a displacement factor. The kingdom of the world, all right, put that one over here. The kingdom of the world has now become the kingdom of who? The kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, of the Messiah, of, of God the Father, God the Son, and of course, God the Spirit. So one kingdom, the kingdom of the world, has been replaced, displaced, has now become the kingdom. So who has the authority? Is it the worldly kingdom or is it God? Well, in the moment, at the moment, see, the church is living in this awkward middle phase 
where Christians in the, in the first century were living under the authority of the Roman Empire. That was a worldly kingdom. It was a big worldly kingdom, as worldly kingdoms go. They had the authority. They had the authority to imprison and to execute. They had the authority to make life easier, make life harder. They were the ones that had all the power, practically speaking. But the message here is that the kingdom of the world, right, has now become the kingdom of our Lord and His Messiah. So there's a displacement here where God's kingdom will permanently displace the kingdom of the world. And I'll just say it this way for our benefit, the kingdoms of the world and all their different expressions. We'll talk about that in a moment, okay? There's a displacement factor, but then secondly, there's a temporal factor here. Watch. So the kingdom of the world is displaced by the kingdom of God and and of the Messiah specifically, and he, the Messiah, he will reign forever and ever. There's a permanence there. Now let's, let's talk about that. We have to acknowledge this morning that God's kingdom is not here yet in its final form. It was inaugurated, now that's a big word for Sunday morning, it was inaugurated at Jesus' first coming. It started then in its, in its fulfillment. So when Jesus came, when he lived, when he taught the disciples, when he died, when he rose from the dead, that was it. Boom! We're, it's off. We're off to the races. And so in a sense, uh, in some cases, even in the Gospels, you, you'll find this language that the kingdom of God is here. It's here because Jesus has come. And so you can enter the kingdom of God by faith in Jesus. His kingdom is growing. So yes, as as people repent of their sin and become followers of Jesus, his kingdom is growing, yes. But that kingdom, although it's already here in one sense, it's not yet completely here. So we pray your kingdom come. May your kingdom keep growing. And can we get to the final phase? Lord, please bring the final phase. Let's go, right? So it's not here yet, but it has been inaugurated at his first coming, and it will be completed upon his return. We'll see that as we go through the rest of Revelation. Now, we live in the meantime. Well, in the meantime, we need to know some things about the kingdom. Specifically here, when it comes in its full and final form, God's kingdom displaces earthly kingdoms. And I know what you're thinking this morning. You're thinking, Pastor Ryan, that sounds so much like Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. And I'm like, yes, that's exactly what it sounds like, because that's where this comes from. In Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this crazy dream, and it's interpreted by the prophet Daniel in exile in a very difficult situation. And the dream shows in in vivid form God's kingdom like this rock, this mountain that comes in, and it destroys earthly kingdoms, and it grows to the size that it fills the whole earth. It displaces, at that time, Babylon, Persia, later Rome, later other big empires. The British Empire, sure, the Ottoman Empire. United States and their prominence in the world. And those kingdoms are replaced by God's kingdom. Or in Daniel 7, you get this picture of the the kingdoms of the world as these beasts, okay? But then those beasts are judged and put into submission by whom? By the Messiah, the Son of Man, the one like the Son of Man, who gets it done, who comes in the clouds and settles the issue. You see, God's kingdom will displace earthly kingdoms. God's kingdom is coming. It will displace Rome. It will displace the United Nations as an earthly authority. It will displace these United States that we live in. It will displace the warlord in tribal Africa who's abusing smaller people groups. It will displace every political power on earth. Now, we're not there yet, but we're headed there. And you know what? We need this. 
when we are reminded of the brokenness of a political system of this world. Which, again, I often will argue that I think that our system of government is particularly helpful living with sinners. All the checks and balances and the accountability that's in our system of government, it's good. But folks, it's not perfect. And every culture is reminded from time to time of the brokenness of our, of our political system. But one day, our ultimate hope is not that these United States will finally figure it out and we'll finally get the right judges in place and we'll finally get the right senators and if we just had the right president, then we'll make it happen, right? That's not our hope. Our hope is your kingdom come. And his kingdom, it's, I love the song, loud voices. The kingdom of this world has now become the kingdom of God, the kingdom of our, our Lord and his Christ. So there's a displacement here. It's not just political kingdoms, though. Sometimes that power is expressed not politically, but economically. And the Roman Empire was kind of one and the same. Often it's one and the same, but not always. Because those who have the money have the power. Coca-Cola, Amazon, Apple. Right? I mean, we could go on. There are massive corporations, international corporations, that wield power that, in some cases, rivals a nation. The untouchably wealthy who seem to dodge accountability from this court or that that court by bouncing from country to country or island to island, whatever it is. And when it feels like they're dodging justice, whoever it might be, big or small, the answer here is that God's kingdom will displace their kingdom. You won't always be buying from Amazon. (laughs) But they have two-day delivery. Wait, what? Isn't that a good thing? We We won't always... Right? We won't always have to navigate a world where those with money have power. God's kingdom will displace earthly kingdoms. Sometimes we need those reality or reminders, especially when the corruption of a broken system is in our face and we see that evil. But there's a second aspect here that we see in the statement of the loud voices. It's not just that the kingdom of our world has become the kingdom of our Lord, but it's also that our Lord's reign or the Messiah's reign will be forever at the end of verse 15, and he will reign forever and ever. Do you know what that means? No election cycle. That makes me very happy, (laughs) right? I don't know if I can do another one. No dynasty drama. I mean, I know some of you love the British royal family as much as some Brits do, so we can, you know, get into that. But, but, you know, all the drama that's involved with succession of reigns in cultures where that's a thing, right? And there's been a lot of bloodshed, by the way, in the history, especially of Europe, over who's, you know, king of what, when, right? And so you look at that, no more of that. No more of that. No more hostile takeovers or coups. His kingdom will be forever, And you know what? So much of our fear on a daily basis is due to the fragile nature of the peace in our little world, right? But do you realize that this passage is meant to be an antidote to that fear? Where even as as the halls of governments are shaking and societies crumble, our security comes from God's kingdom and the fact that Jesus' reign will be forever. Never end. Now, that's security. And so here, we just we get this simple reminder that God's kingdom is coming. And the Spirit knew the church needs to know that as we face persecution. And we need to know that as we live in a broken world where evil rears its ugly head in so many different ways. 
man, things can go wrong. Now, he goes on in verse 16. We see more of what he sees here in this heavenly vision addresses the same you know, aspect, the same issue, the, the nature of God's kingdom. It's what we need to know. So in verse 16, we read on. John sees, he sees the 24 elders, right, who were seated before God on their thrones. They fell face down and they worshiped God. And we've talked in weeks past how these could possibly be representative of believers, as even we sang, that's interpreted that way in the hymn, holy, 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 or they could possibly be angelic beings. But either way, it doesn't matter. Whoever they are, what are they doing? They're worshiping. They're worshiping God in the midst of even the the forecasting of difficulty for the church, but they're worshiping God because of his kingdom, the fact that it will come and it will permanently displace worldly kingdoms. So they fall face down and they worship God. And then in verse 17, we get the content of their song of praise saying, we give thanks, we give you thanks, Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. There's so much here, okay? Okay. In praising God here, they identify God in his supremacy over all. There's an emphasis on his strength here. Lord God, the Almighty, which is kind of like the New Testament equivalent to the Old Testament title for God, Lord of Armies. Okay, God of Armies. So here, the Lord God, the Almighty, God over all. He's more, he's more powerful than the Roman Empire and their military juggernaut. He's more powerful than the United States and its military juggernaut. He's more powerful than any force we can imagine. He's always been... And he is right now, who is and who was. And just remember from from chapter 1 that those statements, he is and he was, they're meant to say God is always sovereign. There's never a time when he hasn't been the Almighty, right? And that includes today, right? And so they're praising God for that. Why? Because specifically, verse 17, you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Notice there's an acknowledgement here, even in in the song or the statement of the 24 elders, There's an acknowledgement that this power is always there for God to to reign. But there there will come a day when instead of us being caught between the first and second coming, and instead of us being caught between the kingdom's inauguration and its completion, there will be a day when finally the Lord says, okay, enough, it's time. And he will take that great power of his and he will begin to reign. Now, that doesn't mean God isn't reigning now. What it means is there will be that, that moment in time where God's reign becomes the only reign. doesn't mean God's not reigning now, but it means this is the day when that's it, when his kingdom displaces the world kingdom, and they praise him for that. But then watch verse 18. Because this is where the rub this is where the rub is. This is where there's okay, wait a minute, what? Because there's some conflict here. There are different agendas, right? Watch verse 18. The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged, and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints, and to those who fear your name, both small and great. And the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. You see, we can follow Jesus when things go wrong because he will set everything right. We can follow Jesus when things go very wrong in our culture, the world at large. We can follow Jesus when things go wrong in our workplace, at our schools. Even with our own physical health and our finances, the things going on in our family, we can follow Jesus when things go wrong. Why? Because one day he will set everything right. 
there will be a day of reckoning, and it's his day. And so here, we have four features, especially in verse 18, four features of God's kingdom that comfort us as we live in the midst of a very broken world. His kingdom is coming, okay? That means something very specific. You'll notice in verse 18 when he says the nations were angry. The nations were angry, right? What does that mean? Well, it's a reference to Psalm 2 where we see the nations depicted as plotting and scheming against the Lord and the Messiah and his anointed. So the nations are like trying to, how can we keep the power and God not have the power? How can we get rich and not have to yield control to the Lord? How can we get what we want and not have to submit to God? And you remember in Psalm 2, the Lord laughs at that kind of thinking. As if that was possible, right? It's not possible. And actually, the Lord says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And he will bring all the nations into submission. Rule over them with an iron scepter is the language there. That's the Messiah's role. Well, this is basically the same thought pattern here in verse 18. The nations were angry in rebellion against God because they want the power, because they want what they want. But your wrath has come. Meaning there will, there will be a day when God's wrath is finally poured out through Christ where it's poured out on those nations who are in rebellion against him. Powerful though they may be for the moment. And what, what happens? Well, first, the first feature of God's kingdom we see here is, that the ju- the ju- uh, the, is the judgment of the nations. The nations are judged. The Messiah will ru- rule with an iron scepter. That's like the macro view, right? So sometimes you might get frustrated because there are problems that we can't fix. Problems that are so big it's like we just can't, you know, we can't just correct um, a, a nation in that sense, just like this, or with even an election or something simple like that. But God will correct it. The, the nations will be judged by the Messiah. So that's the macro view. That's the first feature of his kingdom. The, the nations will be judged. But second, we have the judgment of the dead. This is t- the micro view, individuals. The time has come, he says in verse 18, for the dead to be judged. Now we're going to get a little preview or more on that later in Revelation. But here the point is just to say that even people that seem like they got away with it and then died, even if they died wealthy or they died without paying the price for the wrongs that they did, they will not get away with it. That the dead will be judged. That there is a resurrection unto judgment. And honestly here, there's a, there's a, a micro focus. So we macro with judgment of the nations, micro now with the judgment of the dead. No one gets away with anything. Now, if, if you're someone who hasn't trusted in the Lord Jesus and you're hearing this message, you need to take that as a warning because the dead will be judged. And you can get away with it. You can sneak one by the government. You can sneak it by the authorities. You, you, can, you can dodge accountability for this or for that, but you will not dodge the Almighty. And so there's a warning there. But for the church, this is meant to be a comfort. Because guess what? Some days it will feel like they get away with it. Some days people wrong us, and there's no moment where they come back and they say, you know what? I sinned against you. Will you forgive me? I shouldn't have said that to you. I shouldn't have treated you that way. I shouldn't have done that to you in the workplace. I shouldn't have said that. Whatever, right? And sometimes it's worse than that. Where we're victims of of big-time suffering. And we might get frustrated because it doesn't seem like there's justice. But remember, there's a light at the end of this tunnel. And the second feature here of God's kingdom is that he will judge the dead. No one's getting away with anything. 
I think the focus here is to comfort us, especially as we are victims of sin, when, when wrong is done to us. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you have experienced significant suffering because of something someone else did or said. But you need to know that you can move forward in hope and with confidence, not because some earthly institution can give you ultimate justice or restoration or whatever, but because God himself will not only judge the nations, but he will judge the dead. And so there's hope for us in that, even in the midst of great suffering. Third, in verse 18, we see there's the rewarding of the church. The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints, to those who fear your name, both small and great. So you have uh, a couple special, you know, uh, mentions there. The first would be the prophets, okay? The prophets who especially are the ones who spoke the word of God and suffered for it. That's the focus there. Then you have the saints. Saints is catch-all. All believers. All believers are made holy in Christ. You are saints. But then he emphasizes those who fear your name. It's another way of talking about believers. Then he says both small and great. I wish it said short and tall. I was like, we're so close. We're like right there. It was just two different... Adjectives. Okay. It's not short and tall. It's small and great. What does that mean? The great, the great ones are the well-known Christians. They're the ones who, by God's providence, served him in, in significant ways that are notable and, and are, uh, you know, basically, they're almost famous for their service of the Lord. Right? So they're, they're known. Like Moses. <laughs> right? Like Elijah and Elisha. And we can just go on, right? Those, those are the great ones. Or maybe this is talking about those Christians who serve, who are wealthy, who've been blessed with material success in this life. And so, yes, they are, they're bigger hitters in the culture because of their position, but nonetheless, they love and fear and serve the Lord. And so they use their resources to advance God's kingdom. And so, yes, maybe this is that group. Okay, yes, awesome. They will be rewarded. But you know my heart. It's with the short guy, <laughs> right? The small. What about the Christian who's not famous, who's not known? What about the Christian who's poor, who lives in a third world context and whose whose ministry is limited to a a very small field of reference, right? It's just, it doesn't seem like there's a lot there. Maybe it's basically just this this one particular, you know, seemingly small individual at the bottom of a social scale who all they do is love their family well and serve their neighbors. And like, that's it. And it's never known. There's never a biography written about them. It's not a big deal. They're not a big deal. They're not lauded in the culture. They don't get awards. They're not recognized in the local paper, whatever it is. But you know what? Ultimately, there's a reward coming for the church, both small and great. Those who fear the Lord, those who are his, those who are saints, and especially as we've suffered in many ways for the Lord, there will be a recompense. There will be reward for the church. We'll see that more as we get into the rest of Revelation, but the bottom line here is that Jesus will bless his church with reward. That reward is coming. It's not here yet, right? I just think maybe there's a a moment here of caution to say that sometimes we really wish our reward was given by the world. Um, we had a lot of drama with some awards ceremonies this year as a culture. Um, pro user tip, don't insult people in the ceremony, right? So we're learning, we're learning these things. 
Um, sometimes you watch those ceremonies, or if you don't watch them, you might hear about them. I know you've seen them from time to time. And you see people, they are recognized for their work, right? And so whether it's music or, or movies or whatever, and they, people go up, right, and they're recognized for their work. And sometimes, I mean, it's not very often, but sometimes the people that go up there, they actually express praise to God, and not just praise to God generically, they might even express praise to Jesus. And you're like, whoa, that is so cool. And then the people are clapping, right? And, and there's a moment there where you're going, I just wish that those people in that room would celebrate Jesus in the church. And maybe on the one hand, that's like a good thing to want, right? Maybe part of us wants that to happen because we just want approval of others. And maybe we, maybe we wish that just the world would just like the church more. The fact is, if we're looking for reward from the world, we will not find it. Tragically, and this has happened uh, multiple times in the history of the church, the church, which has been so desperate for the approval of the world, has gutted the gospel. Because the world says, your message fundamentally is offensive to me. Because you're telling me to stop worshiping my gods, to repent of my sin. You're saying I'm broken, and I need to trust Jesus alone for forgiveness, for salvation. And so that's offensive to the world. And so the church has said, you know what, maybe we could adjust the language there a little bit. Maybe we could tweak the message. And they got the gospel to get reward from the world. Listen, brothers and sisters, listen. There is nothing greater than the eternal reward we will have in Christ. But just note that there's only one who can give that reward out. It's his job to reward the church. And if we're looking for that kind of approval from the world, we will be sorely disappointed. And we'll have to compromise to get it. That's the third feature of God's kingdom. He will reward the church, the rewarding of the church. And fourthly here in verse 18, the destruction of oppressors. He says, and the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. Now, I just need to tell you here, the language here, talk, it's the, the language is destruction of the earth. Who's destroying the earth? This is not an ecological issue. So in our age, because we might read back into the Bible, like we're going, oh yeah, these are the people that treat the environment bad, and so God's going to judge them. This is not about the environment. This is about people who sin and destroy the world by leading people in rebellion against God. So the language here makes that very clear. It's consistently used that way in Revelation. So this is about those who destroy the earth. The earth here doesn't mean the physical earth. It's talking about the people on the earth. And how do they destroy those people? By leading them in rebellion against God by encouraging sin, by celebrating sin, right? And by diminishing the message of the gospel. And so what will happen? Fourthly, the fourth feature here of God's kingdom is the destruction of oppressors. And I use that word oppressors, right? Whether it's Babylon or Rome, but it's not limited to governments, of course. And it's certainly not limited to those who are wealthy or those from a particular ethnicity or a particular gender, there are oppressors all over the, pray, all over the place. Uh, the, the term bully has become helpfully more used, I think, in our culture. Yes, bullying is a thing, and it happens all over the place. Thugs is an older term, right? Thug. Thugs will be judged. This is good. Because, frankly, a lot of times, bullies get away with it. And whether it's at the micro level, we're talking about it on the playground, or whether we're talking about the macro level. Those oppressors, those who destroy by leading people in rebellion against God and take advantage of others, those people will be judged again. 
Why does he identify? That's the same as the nations of the dead. Why does he have to say it a different way? Because the church will often experience the, the negative of those, of those destro- destroyers or oppressors. We often will be on the receiving end. And because we choose to love and to serve rather than to fight, right? That means that we may take some hits. And so there's hope here for the church to say that, yes, it may be hard in the moment, but we're looking forward to the coming of God's kingdom. And so we can, at the same time as we look forward to that hope, we can repent of putting our hope anywhere else. We might put our hope in the Supreme Court. Can't get it done. The healthcare system is going to fix all the problems. No, we can't. Right? The military, if we had a stronger military, we'd be safe. Well, it's not going to ultimately solve the problem. Our only hope is in His kingdom coming. We can follow Jesus when things go wrong. Why? Because he will ultimately set everything right. And then in verse 19, we get kind of the final part of this aspect of the vision. We get this this glimpse into the heavenly temple. And we're already in the heavenly temple, but there's uh, there's a renewed focus here. Watch verse 19. John says, Then the temple of God in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, and earthquake, and severe hail. So by this time, we're familiar with the earthquake, the rumblings, the lightning, all that, because that's been indicative of the final judgment. So we had that in the seventh seal. We see it here in the seventh trumpet. It's not a huge surprise. But we also might remember that in Exodus, when uh, the Lord was revealing himself to his people on Mount Sinai, it was accompanied by what? By an earthquake, by lightning, by loud thunder. I mean, it was, this was the very same kinds of signs. When God shows up, the earth shakes. Okay, that's the idea. But here, okay, it's not just that God's showing up. It's that God is coming out of his temple to do this work. Notice what he says about the temple. This is the temple of God in heaven, all right? And the focus is on the ark, all right? The ark of the covenant. So, yes, Indiana Jones fans, that ark, okay, that ark. This is the heavenly version, okay? The earthly one was modeled off the heavenly version. What, what, is, what are we talking about? The ark was this box, okay, that was made that would, that would house the covenant, the, the agreement that God made with his people, the law. And he said, I will, I will be your God, you will be my people, this is what it looks like. And short version, love God, love people, right? So that's, that's the law encased in, in the ark. Okay, the ark in the temple, the ark was in the most holy place, and it was envisioned as God's footstool. So when you saw the ark, which only the high priest saw the ark once a year, and he couldn't even see it because it was so dark, but anyway, um, the idea was that above the ark, God sat enthroned. And so that was, that was the idea. When the high priest would make the uh, once a year offering, the, uh, the offering of atonement, um, he would bring in the blood from that offering, and he would sprinkle it on the, the ark. And that would be where God would accept the blood of that sacrifice as payment for the sins of his people. So here, the heavenly ark, well, what's the point? The point is that when this kingdom comes, when God's kingdom comes in its complete and final version, it is the fulfillment of his covenant. It's the fulfillment of his covenant. He promised to do this work, and he will do it. And so he will complete this work. And so... At this moment, in the seventh trumpet, and, you know, John hears the voices talking about his kingdom has replaced the kingdom of the world and all of that. And then he, he looks and he sees in the temple. What does he see? He sees the Ark of the Covenant, which is the reminder that this is what God is doing. He is fulfilling his covenant. God's kingdom is the fulfillment 
of his covenant. You could say it another way. God's kingdom is the fulfillment of his word. It's God doing what he said he would do. That ark in the holiest place reminds us of our need for mercy. And frankly, it's a reminder of the work of Jesus. I don't know if you remember in Hebrews, but in Hebrews it talks about when Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, he went through the veil in the heavenly place. And he made the offering for us at the most holy place in heaven. And so that's pictured here in the vision. John gets to see that spot. But it's a reminder to us that there's mercy and grace available for sinners. How? Because of God's faithfulness to his covenant. Did you know? Yes, there's evil going on out there. Absolutely. But did you know that your biggest problem is not the evil going on out there? It's the evil going on right in here. And the solution to that problem has come in the form of Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. When he died for your sin, when his blood was shed, God accepted that as payment for your failure. And guess what? By putting your faith in Jesus, what are you given? You are given righteousness. You are given access to the kingdom. You're called a saint, and you are welcomed home. This is the good news. But God's covenant faithfulness is not only seen in the cross. It doesn't stop there. His covenant faithfulness is also seen in the establishment of his kingdom forever. And brothers and sisters, I just want to encourage you that so often, and rightly so, we focus so much on the forgiveness of sins. And this is a good thing. Okay? We need to talk about forgiveness of sins. It's massive. Okay? But the forgiveness of our sins is not the end of our salvation. That's not it. Jesus didn't die merely to get you out of hell. He died to make you a citizen of his kingdom. So God's covenant faithfulness is seen in the cross, absolutely. But it's also seen in the establishment of his kingdom. He died to make us kingdom people. So when we think about his kingdom coming, we realize, wait a minute. This is what Jesus is doing. In the meantime, he's populating his kingdom. That's what's happening right now. He's populating his kingdom. Yes, the Ark of the Covenant reminds us that God's kingdom is the fulfillment of his covenant work. But the question is, are we on the right side of that work? And maybe you haven't trusted in Christ, and so you're not a part of his kingdom. So be it. I would just encourage you this morning that there is good news for you in Christ. But maybe you are a Christian, but you have limited your view of your salvation to forgiveness only. Okay? Forgiveness is good, but it's not all that God is doing. He has saved you not only to forgive you of your sin, but to make you into the image of his son. To make you into a good kingdom citizen. Why? Because he covenanted. He, he, he said he would do it. So this is what he's doing. What are kingdom people like? They are forgiven. Yes. That's not all. They value God's glory above all else. Is that you this morning? They prioritize the family of God, the church. Is that you this morning? They sacrificially love others. Is that you this morning? They confess their sin when they fail, both to God and to those whom they've wronged. And they ask for forgiveness. Is that you this morning? They work hard. They redeem their time for the glory of God. They pursue sexual purity, especially in an immoral culture. They use their money and their resources wisely. 
They speak to build up rather than to tear down. So they're careful with how they use their language. And they are looking forward to his kingdom finally coming in its completion. God is making those kinds of people right now. That is who he has saved you and me to be. And so, yes, God's kingdom is the fulfillment of his covenant. The question is, are you on board with that? Are you on board with his kingdom agenda? I keep thinking, I know I talked about him last week, but I keep thinking of uh, Adoniram Judson. Again, he was the first Baptist missionary and went to Burma. Uh, his first wife, Anna, when they left, I mean, they left. Like, they left. Everyone, everything, gone, you know? And one, and I can't, I, I don't remember where I read it, but one commentator about his life said, they had died to the nearness of family. Because they left their family and got on a boat to go to India, and that was it. Like, done. He didn't, uh, is what first wife Anna died in that trip. Uh, Adoniram Judson didn't actually come back to his home for 33 years. So the, the biographer said they died to the nearness of family. Why? Because they're kingdom people. And God's kingdom was more important than living close to their family. Now, not everyone's called to that, but some people are. I wonder, have you died to the nearness of family? Have you died to the love of money? Have you died to living in the ideal climate? You're like, yes, we live in New Jersey, right? <laughs> Sometimes we can still live in this place and just want desperately more than anything else to live somewhere else. I don't know if that's kingdom living. Have you died to the love of comfort? Have you died to the love of acceptance by others? You, you can't be a kingdom citizen and not die to yourself. It's not an option. So yes, God's kingdom is the fulfillment of his covenant work, and he's doing that work in you. Where do you need to grow? Uh, my friend John Calvin was talking about this theme. He was picking it up in Daniel. But he said this, and I just thought it fit the passage so perfectly this morning. Why give us this picture? Why, why give us this glimpse of the goodness of his kingdom, displacing worldly kingdoms? Why give us this glimpse of his judgment of all that is wrong, making everything right? Calvin said it this way. He said, for God wished to sustain our spirits. So that amidst such agitations and tumults, now that's 16th century for turbulence, right? Trials. Amidst such agitations and tumults, we might remain constant and patiently and quietly wait for the promised Redeemer. Now Calvin was thinking about his first coming. We could just as easily apply that to his second coming. Why are we given this vision? So that we would be sustained in living lives of kingdom citizens right now. Even though for the moment, the kingdom is not fully here yet. Brothers and sisters, we can follow Jesus when things go wrong because he will one day set everything right. The question is, are you following? Would you pray with me? We'll ask God to help us. Lord, we, we again thank you for this passage of Scripture, which is... Um, it's just such an encouragement, even in the midst of a tough week. And we thank you for this, this glimpse forward to your kingdom coming in its final and complete form. 
And Lord, we pray that we would desire that coming. Help us to pray your kingdom come. Lord, help us to adjust our expectations of the world. Lord, help us to see that you are doing a work in us that goes far beyond the forgiveness of our sins, but it also includes the transformation of our character into Christ's likeness. And Lord, as we live in kind of this middle time where you have inaugurated your kingdom and yet we wait for its completion, we pray that you would help us as we face living in a broken country, in a broken state, or as we face living in broken families and going to workplaces and schools filled with brokenness, Lord, we pray that you would help us to navigate these difficult times by faith in you. And when evil rears its ugly head, Lord, may we look to the cross for reminder of our protection, that we are protected in Christ. But Lord, may we also look to this ultimate day of your return in confidence, knowing that one day all will be set to right. So Lord, help us to walk with persistent faith, persevering for your glory and confident, not in us, but confident in you. We ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen.